0: Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory, welcome to Horror Vanguard.
1: Hello, Uh, everybody. Okay, yeah, Uh go for it. (laughs) God, we, would you believe we've been doing this semi-professionally for a while now? 300
0: episodes and we still can't start the show, right? But that's okay, we're we're haunted. Uh, we're haunted in this case by uh, the ghost of an evil cat, circa Amityville 3D. Uh, well, hello everyone. Welcome uh, to today's episode of Horror Vanguard. We have something special today because not only am I one of your co-ghosts, Ashley Darrow, Uh, But you're joined by now star of stage and screen, Hollywood luminary, uh, John at the lit crit guy, who will have an IMDb page. (laughs) Uh,
1: Weirdly, yes, this is this is a very strange place to be in. But hello. How are we doing?
0: And we are in our in our little uh, our our haunted uh, house of horrors here. We're not alone. We are joined by Jack uh, Riccobono. Oh my god, did I get that wrong?
2: No, no, that was totally fine. It's <laughs> <That's> all
0: good. <laughs> I got so in my head about that one. Uh, I can the hear director, your up. <laughs> yeah, right. The director of Amityville, The Origins, the uh,
2: docuseries that John was a part of. Hey guys, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Uh, super glad that you can be on the show, Jack. Uh, first of all, would you mind kind of introducing your, yourself to the audience, uh, explaining a little bit about uh, about, um, what you do and maybe a little bit about this project.
2: Sure. Yeah. I'm a a filmmaker, uh, based in New York city. I I grew up in New York and this Amityville story is a New York story. So it has a bit of a, of a, a, special connection for me. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, done a variety of projects through the years, some feature documentaries uh, short form series, uh, commercials, branded this stuff. And, um, and this is my first television series. It's a uh, four-part limited series about the Amityville horror and the, the true story, the origins of where this insane um, Amityville uh, phenomenon came from, uh, really kind of rooted in the 1970s and trying to look at uh, not just the hauntings, which were of course connected to the Lutz family that got haunted out of this house in Long Island in the town of Amityville after 28 days uh, back in 1976, but it also looks at the true crime murders that happened inside of that same house just a year before the Lutz family moved in.
1: Uh, Yeah, and this, this, for for people who haven't I mean, obviously, the Amityville horror film franchise has become a kind of sprawling beast by now. But <laughs> for, I suppose, the kind of obvious question that we kind of have to address right off the bat is like, what is the documentary doing that like other, you know, investigations of the of the the, the murders, other investigations of the Lutz family's experiences haven't done yet?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very good question, and it's one that I asked myself before getting involved in this project because <laughs> everybody hears Amityville and, you know, they sort of think they know. There's like a little bit of an eye roll at this point. It's become like a little bit of a, of a joke, I would say, spoofed all over the place. Um, but I think um, what fascinated me about the story is, you know, really that I didn't, I didn't know that much about the actual backstory that it was based upon, you know, not just that it was supposedly a true story uh, based on the Lutz's experiences, but also this dynamic of them having moved into a murder house where, you know, in 1974, six out of seven family members were found shot to to death in their beds under pretty mysterious circumstances. And so when I found out about the murders, you know, it's sort of, opened up this this other um, element of the story. And I think that what other projects haven't really done is, is looked at the Amityville horror as a product of its time. You know, it came out in 1979 and it was really kind of like the culmination of all of these dark undercurrents of the 70s. And I think that's kind of what we were hoping to do with the show is really take the kind of first elevated look At all of the anxiety and fear and the distrust of institutions and also the fascination with the occult, um, all of these kind of things bubbling underneath the surface that kind of led to the first film becoming such a phenomenon, which... I mean, again, even that I think is overshadowed right now. But that first film, when it came out in 1979, mm-hmm. starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder, you know, it made over 80 million dollars. It was a it was a huge box office sensation, and um, so it, it definitely touched a nerve. And I mean, I, I, I don't think that that's a great movie the evil horror you know i don't think that like <laughs> looking at it you know critically or something that you would watch mm-hmm. that film and think it's like you know an amazingly made film but it clearly uh touched a nerve and um and so i think part of what uh we try to do in the series is really look at you know why was that you know what was it about this film and this story that seemed to kind of um, really uh catch people's attention and then and then obviously it has this long crazy legacy with now more than 40 films released with amityville in it and and as you said John this sort of sprawling sprawling beast that it's become in the <laughs> in the horror genre
1: yeah in a way it's it's almost become kind of like a, a folk story now right it's it's almost mm-hmm. become kind of like uh completely in the kind of cultural imagination, it's become very much disassociated from the very the the, the very real, very tragic um, murders in the late seventies. And it, it also blows my mind that the director of the amateur Horror also made Cool Hand Luke, yes, and did some incredible work with Paul Newman. It's like
2: <laughs> one of the weirdest choices. Yes, yeah, Stuart Rosenberg. Yeah, I mean he he was definitely uh, established. Hollywood director. I don't think he made any other horror films aside from this one. So this was kind of like, I think his, his, his only foray into this genre, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, and also the, um, the composer, uh, Lilo Schifrin, you know, he was uh, nominated for an Academy Award for his score for Amityville mm-hmm. Horror. So, uh, and he's uh, obviously, a you know, his, uh, a, um, a very well-regarded, uh, composer. And the, I think the music and the score is, is pretty iconic in addition to, of course, the, the quarter round windows, uh, poster (laughs) that everyone remembers. (laughs) (laughs) So Ash,
1: what, what were your thoughts about the series And, and like, were there kind of elements that you thought, you know, this was kind of new or brought some, something new to light for you?
0: Well, I, I think one of the one of the new things that I encountered here was I think uh, a, a great talent that could emerge, probably even outside of the documentary context, uh, a young upcoming uh, uh, on screen talent, John Greenaway. <laughs> uh, so that was that was pretty interesting. Uh, um, <laughs> but, but, but no, beyond that. Um, so, like, one of the things that's always kind of fascinated me about medieval horror, because like, I, Jack, I totally agree. Like, the the franchise is kind of like. Mm, it's got a lot of goofy movies in it and like 98% of the movies are just goofy stuff yeah, it's, happening. It,
1: they're just, it's not good. A lot of them. And do you really think Amityville in space is going to be worth watching? <laughs> also, let us know if we should do an Amityville retrospective.
0: Oh, let's do it. Let's do it. But what, so, so one of the things that like kind of draws me because I remember like growing up as a kid, the first Amityville horror movie has this kind of like mythic proportion to it right it it is this product of kind of the generation of mythology and folklore right The, the the movie is so scary the the book is so haunted it's almost got the 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 uh nowhere near the same talent but the same kind of cultural cachet as the exorcist
2: yes yes and that that's definitely something that that we explore in the show uh the exorcist came out in 1973 and was something of a template i think you know this was sort of before the the hollywood blockbuster really got established with with jaws and star wars and everything but the exorcist was this tremendous cultural phenomenon with people lining up mm-hmm. around the block and having these sort of visceral reactions to the film you know vomiting in the theater and you know, all this crazy stuff and <laughs> yeah. and basically everybody went to see it if you were you know a, a hardcore um, you know, believer, or if you were an atheist, like all sorts of people just turned out to see that film. And it was also supposedly based on, on something of a true story. Um, so I think, you know, in some ways that provided something of a template for Amityville horror. And in fact, you know, one of, one of the interesting characters in the show um, is this lawyer William Weber who identifies kind of early on that there's this, this interesting confluence between the DeFeos who were murdered in the house and the paranormal experience that the Lutzes were were reporting that you kind of had the Exorcist uh, meets the Godfather and he you know <laughs> early on he kind of saw this potential. For the merging of these stories between this, this mass murder of this Italian American family, which had legitimate ties to the mafia, um, with the, the paranormal experiences of the Lutzes to become a phenomenon. And, and you know, he was really he was really right. He planted the seed in the Lutzes head to do a book about it. And that's, you know, that's basically what came out first in 1977, and that was a huge hit. It sold more than six million copies, and it was all based on this idea, you know, that it was a true story, their story of what happened in the house, and that led directly to the film, which was made by the studio American International, and their whole marketing of the film was also rooted in this, based on a true story idea, and they put the Lutz's front and center and they even paid for the lutzes to take a lie detector test in the lead up to the release of the film (laughs) so you know they really kind of had this uh genius you know marketing approach that um that that did build the film up into this kind of must-see event and they had the lutzes out there on a press tour you know sitting on the couch next to james brolin who plays um, mm-hmm. you, you know, p- plays uh, George Lutz in, in the film um, on Good Morning America on uh, you know the day before the movie is released, and and, and we were lucky to have Mr. Greenaway as, as one of our experts. <laughs> and and uh, John, you very you very aptly point out that you have this kind of strange collapse between you know truth and entertainment where you kind of see these these people who are... It's not just the movie, but it's like everything they were doing around the movie uh, to make it feel like the story was kind of everywhere. I mean,
1: I think it's it's impossible to understate uh, just how weird that clip is. That clip is... It's, it's so <laughs> yeah. weird to see Josh Brolin's dad sitting there on Good Morning America, like, selling his movie, and, like, there's the real-life guy next to him who's like based totally based on a true story it's yep absolutely based on a true story and it's it is this kind of weird moment where you kind of like see the permeability between these fields of like quote unquote true true crime or true the paranormal that's true and like uh, a a movie um and that was it was one of the things you actually sent me before you know coming out to 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 do the filming um and it was it was one of the things that genuinely blew my mind that that was part of the marketing because I think it's such, it's, it's such a kind of, there's kind of, there's a real calculation behind how the film was kind of placed into like pop culture consciousness.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think you can see James Brolin kind of squirming in that interview. Yeah, he's like, as he's he's like kinda, this is
1: weird, guys. This is <laughs> this is kind of
2: weird. He's put on the spot, you know, like, do you really believe them? And, you know, he, he kind of says he, he does as he's sitting next to them. But well, I mean, the Lutzes were really an interesting pair in 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 terms of how they came across in the media, too, because they weren't these kind of you know, wild eyed, uh, crazy haired lunatics <laughs> They didn't come across as like these, you know, extreme uh, people who would believe in sort of extreme or crazy things. They were very kind of soft spoken and serious. And I think Kathy Lutz in particular, you know, kind of really um, helped sell the story as as feeling very authentic. I mean, you really kind of felt like they were they were saying their demeanor seemed sort of very serious. But then when you would listen to the content of what came out of their mouths, like it was, it was pretty wild.
1: It's, it it is, it is really fascinating to see that kind of interviews from the time. And then, it, there's the most kind of American thing of the constant lawsuits that followed afterwards. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. I was, Yeah, I was just wondering, Jack, what do you think about the kind of like the legal sort of real world legacy of all of this?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, it's it's interesting in the context of, of sort of intellectual property, because that's that's part of what led to all the lawsuits and recrimination, I mean, greed is, is a major theme that we explore because it obviously was a driver in kind of pushing the story in every direction. And, and it was apparent from the very beginning. So, I mean, uh, the DeFeo murders, you know, were, were really tragic. And the, the sole surviving member of that family, uh, Ron DeFeo Jr., Uh, was 23 years old at the time of the murders, and he was ultimately convicted of murdering his entire family. Um, While he was in the process of still being sentenced, his lawyer, William Weber, the guy who I mentioned, saw the potential of the, the exorcist meets the godfather, he was already negotiating for Ronnie DeFeo Jr.'s life rights before he was even sentenced, <laughs> before he was even sentenced. So, I mean, it's, this guy was really Jesus. ahead of his time in a lot of ways because, I mean, he was, um, he was seeing this potential and he was going to write a book just about the DeFeo murders. This is before everything even happened with the Lutzes. Uh, he was already looking to monetize that story, mm. um, and then you know, so, so so right at the beginning, you know, the 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 greed uh, was present, and then it rolled forward. I mean, part of what I find fascinating is that there was really no um, you know template for what the Lutzes did in terms of of these media appearances and how and how it blew up, and um, and basically. After they fled the house in early 1976, um, they connected with this reporter who um, helped them set up a a seance in the house. And the the Lutzes um, said that they had wanted to um, see if they could get the house cleansed. So they were kind of interested in having uh, paranormal investigators come in and, and maybe try to cleanse the house so they could move back into it. And that led to this séance led by the Warrens, um, Ed and Lorraine Warren of of the Conjuring fame. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there was uh, an exclusive given to the local TV station and a New York City affiliate. And so there's actual footage of this séance that was held in March of 1976. Um, and the and Lorraine Warren declared that it was. The closest to hell she ever wanted to get, and so she validated what the Lutzes were saying about the the evil presence in the house, and that is, you know, really sort of what 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 lit the match, I would say, or what you know, kind of sparked the kind of uh, Mm -hmm. media media frenzy, and I think it kind of opened up the eyes of the Lutzes too, of like how 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 much of a story this could become and that kind of then rolled forward into them doing magazine interviews you know for for good housekeeping and stuff like that and then of <laughs> course you know and then to them, amazing amazing and then them oh, doing, you God. Know, doing, yeah and then they were all over the you know the the national Enquirer, the star you know um you know, some supermarket, uh, papers like that. Um, and then of course the book, but I mean, wrapped into this was, was, um, you know, some, I don't know. I mean, again, it's, it's hard to know what, what they believed and what they didn't, you know, part of what we have in the series is, is, uh, the first real long form sit down interview with their middle son, Christopher, who is seven years old when the hauntings occurred. And, um, so, you know, it was really interesting to sort of be able to to talk with him and hear from him firsthand what he thinks happened and and why he thinks it happened and, you know, I don't want to spoil it, but basically he I mean, he definitely believes that paranormal events occurred to you know to the family in the house that they happened that they were real Uh, but he is also quite angry at his stepfather George Mm -hmm. for embellishing some of those events in the press and I think kind of leaning into the attention and he also uh, blamed George uh, for unleashing uh, the the evil forces that that haunted the family.
1: I think for the the record after having watched all of it I think that interview is is in some ways uh one of the hardest to watch and is also like super interesting um, mm. and his own kind of like experiences uh are really powerful and kind of add a lot to what i do think is often treated you know something which is treated often in a really kind of like sensationalist or you know this isn't a, a, a very serious thing, but, like, it's mm-hmm. clear there have been, like, very serious real-world consequences for, you know, so many people.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we really wanted to capture the the human toll here, both in terms of the, the DeFeo family victims, you know, who have also been... Manipulated and exploited in the Amityville movie franchise in different ways, um, and and really try to humanize them, Um, and also you know Christopher was a child when all of this happened, and and it clearly had a serious impact on on his entire life, and he's still dealing with the consequences today. So um, you know I think the series has a lot of different tones to it, and we definitely wanted to sort of um, be real about the impacts of this story on some of the people closest to it. And whether you believe in the paranormal or not, um, at at the root of it, it's kind of about these two families and how they were both, um, really destroyed in different ways, you know, through the events of, of, what happened in that house. Uh, yeah,
1: absolutely. And it's, um, I suppose we should. I, I suppose then we should maybe kind of talk a little bit about the movie itself, because there has been this huge kind of cultural impact, a big personal impact. Um, I, I'm curious to know: do you both uh, agree with you know Stephen King's famous review of the movie that really it's a movie that's about the kind of crisis of American home ownership?
2: I mean, I, I think that's you know that's one sort of a little bit glib, uh, reading of it. I do think there's a real estate element to Mm -hmm. the story. I wouldn't say that's the only aspect of it, but certainly, um, the Lutzes were George and Kathy had recently gotten married. Um, Kathy already had three children by her first husband. And so she was essentially a single mom at the time when she met George and, um, and, they, you know, she was working as a as a waitress in a diner, um, and George had the surveying business that his his father had started, and so moving into this house was very aspirational for them. So there what you know there's definitely a real estate component in the sense of the American dream and and sort of them wanting to live in this really a beautiful uh, mansion uh it's a, it's a beautiful street ocean avenue out in amityville and it, and it leads uh, right down to the water and there's a canal that runs along behind the houses where there are these these boat houses and so it was a really um a beautiful house but obviously it had this dark history because just a year before uh, these murders had happened there so I mean that that obviously had depressed the price and, <laughs> yeah. um, and george George claimed that they all discussed the fact that you know the the murders had happened in the house and that they talked about it with with the kids before they decided to buy the house I don't know how you talk about that with a five-year-old you know because uh, Christopher's younger sister was Missy was just five years old when they moved in so you know I'm not sure exactly what you know what kind of conversation you could have with your kids about um, moving into a murder house, and they even bought the furniture of the DeFeo estate, including the bed frames. Mm-hmm. You know where the where the where the, the victims had been shot. Um, so so I don't know. I mean, it, you know, yeah, I think there's a, a real estate component to the, to the film, um, but I think it's operating on on more layers than that.
1: Uh, what about you, Ash?
2: I, I I
0: couldn't agree more. I I think that that's spot on. There's there's definitely I mean like even in the 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 a horror uh, as a movie right as this kind of cultural object we've got has has really just it's never just been a thing of the silver screen right it was it was Jay Anson's novel it was a real world series of events and then now you've got you know like people people have been going to that home for decades now to take pictures of in front in front of it right and like. <laughs> I, I think the to, to reduce it down to just kind of like, you know, it, it is overly simplistic to just be say about the anxieties of home ownership because it's also, there's the true crime element. And then we have like, reality TV is just getting started in America in 1973 with uh, the American family. And then in 79, we get real people. Mm. So we've got this kind of like shift in, in focalizing and what we want to watch on TV. And it's it's ceasing to be, celebrity driven content and now it's starting to be these kind of sorted personal stories of of the the underbelly of the you know white picket fence dream and medieval horror kind of emerges perfectly at that moment right like this is in and even um anson's book too right like anson credits um hp lovecraft's the dunwich horror yeah uh, for as one of his like core inspirations, and I think that that is is a really revealing move because one of Lovecraft's entire you go see uh, literally any of our episodes on anything H P Lovecraft for for a nine hour rant from me on the subject. <laughs> but like uh, one of H P Lovecraft's best tricks as a writer was to really deftly blend real world historic events with horrifying paranormal fiction to create this kind of plausible deniability and Amityville just exists so perfectly in that little wedge. You know, this is this is every haunted murder house story from the outskirts of the town you grew up in.
1: Yeah, and, and
2: they and throw I would point everything out they...
1: into this, don't they? They throw everything into this because uh the house is where the, there was a murder that happened there. There was a satanist who lived there. It's built on top of an ancient Indian burial ground.
2: Playing yeah. <laughs> the hits.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah. No, they well, what were you gonna say, Jack? Well, I was gonna point out that uh Jay Anson's book is is supposedly a work of nonfiction, not a novel. So that is Oh yeah, yeah, which, <laughs> it's an important detail. <laughs> an important detail. But yeah, I mean uh, it's it's true. I mean, and that wasn't just in the book or the movie, but that was in the the Lutz's telling of it too, that that they um they really did uh wrap in uh so many different Kind of tropes of the time. Um, it, it, I would say the the religious aspect of it is important, and you know, in the series we look at um, the three films that are that are known as the unholy trinity of Rosemary's Baby, The Exorcist, and The Omen. And you know, that 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 is, I think, 1968 for Rosemary's Baby, and then 73 for The Exorcist, and 75 for The Omen. And so you see this kind of mainstreaming of uh, the idea of demonic possession and of, of exorcism. And uh, after the Lutzes fled the house, um, George uh, went to England and got an exorcism himself. Um, so, you know, the, they were embodying, you know, a lot of these sort of more um extreme uh beliefs of the time um and that's i mean i think that is threaded into the film and of course the the whole indian burial ground trope is something we get into pretty significantly i mean we Mm -hmm. we interview a um a film critic shay vassar who who wrote a whole column about the history of the Indian burial ground trope in horror film and she traces it to Amityville as the very first mm. movie to incorporate that trope. I mean, it, it existed in, mm, in, in fiction before that, but, um, but it kind of um, sets off a trend and, and there's a really interesting and strange relationship too between The Shining and Amityville Horror. The Shining comes out the next year in 1980 um, and it's hard not to feel like Kubrick was somehow influenced by Amityville horror because you have um, both the Indian burial ground aspect, but then with some of the visuals and and just the, the main story of the sort of father figure, you know, going insane and kind of going after his own family with an axe. You know, there's a lot of strange um, <laughs> visual similarity. I mean, I, I would say The Shining is, of course, so far super superior film in terms of, of execution and impact, but just the timing of it and the thematic connections are interesting. Uh, And you've, you've mentioned
1: religion, which allows me to talk about um, Rod Steiger, who is my favorite character in this entire film. Uh, I love father Frank Delaney um, and is one of, one of the, one (laughs) of the great figures, uh, one of the kind of great figures of like Catholic, the Catholic cleric in a horror movie. Um, you know, it falls into Catatonia right at the end after preaching his impassioned sermon. Um, And I I wonder, Jack, what do you think about the importance of the cultural prevalence of religion in making the film as successful as it was?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I I feel like um, in some ways it's, I think, a bookend to these other films that I mentioned, you know, that, that um, incorporated this religiosity. And I think that in the seventies, you had this kind of uh, attempt to return to a certain kind of traditionalism. There's like this backlash to the freewheeling, you know, free love, late sixties, hippie culture. Um, And I think that Religion was a part of that, you know, trying to sort of make sense of the world, and it actually led people to kind of these these more extreme places. But we you know we interview an exorcism expert in the in the series also, and he talks about how the Catholic Church was also heavily reforming, mm-hmm. you know, in the seventies in terms of um, you know Vatican II and and changing the the Mass from you know Latin um, and. Basically, the Catholic Church was trying to connect with young people and sort of trying to modernize in some ways. But at the same time, you have these kind of um, major battles between good and evil, and you have Roe v. Wade that happens in 1973. That was also, you know, cast, of course, in in religious terms. Um, so you have, I think, a lot of this kind of turmoil in society as people were actually becoming less religious in the sense of organized religion and going to church every Sunday and and um, and sort of again more open to fringe theories and the occult the zodiac and sort of trying to find answers in other places
1: mm. uh, Ash what do you think
0: I, I think this is this is all really fascinating there, there are all these horror, films that wind up becoming their own like treatises on religion and the occult and kind of pop spirituality, if you will. And and Amityville slots so nicely into all these other films. Like, I mean, like the exorcist again comes to mind as as a high watermark for this type of cinema, but also like uh, films like Hellraiser, the work of H.P. Lovecraft, like horror is always just generating these things that are like, like I, I have known so many people that do believe that the spooky events of the Amityville horror movie happened and happened as they were seen on screen. Yeah, it
1: becomes it becomes and a documentary, right? Yeah. It it creates it creates yes. its own yes. false history, and then it becomes, quote unquote, true. And like I think a really good example of that is. Um, one of the the many, the many figures that's, that there must've been so much he had to leave out Jack, but it's like, uh, I was just thinking about Hans Holzer. Hmm. Uh, yes. And, and his, uh, his medium Ethel Myers, who did their own, who did their own kind of encounter at the Amityville house.
2: Yes. Yeah. And uh, before we get into Hans, I I wanted to also just say that that Christopher Lutz himself, you know, speaks about how after the family fled to California, um, you know, he he actually snuck into the movie theater when the movie came out and was playing. And and at school, um, the kids would call him a liar because they believed that the movie was true versus what what he said happened. So, I mean, that was literally happening on an individual level for him, that the the movie's truth was kind of, um, you know, superseding his own truth. Um, And and just to put a a cap on the religious question too, I mean, I think a huge difference between The Exorcist and Amityville Horror is that the priests fail in Amityville Horror. I mean, you know, they are not effective and the Lutzes must flee the house never to return. And, and the demonic presence, um, remains, you know? Um, and so, you know, that's, I think that's an important, um, important difference, but, but yeah, I mean, we did have to leave a a lot out because there was, I mean, there was, uh, there's just a lot of, um, you know, when you have this this type of story, I think a huge part of it is trying to curate it and, of course, you know, build something that's going to be um, fascinating and and have these different different layers to it. And so, uh, you know, episode one is really almost like a docutainment approach. You know, we really wanted to kind of put the viewer in the minds of the Lutzes for that 28 days to kind of like – feel maybe something of what they felt. And so, you know, we did a lot of original photography in, in different locations to really try to create in um, an, an evocative mood and, and sort of um, put you in their headspace because that's also what where we assumed a lot of, of people would be coming from that they'd heard something about the Lutzes, something about the film, you know, so we kind of start you there and then episode two we go back and look at the DeFeo murders, and that's a much more kind of hard-boiled true crime episode. But in the second part mm-hmm. of that um, episode, I mean, part of what is 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 fascinating about the DeFeo crimes is that there were these 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 questions, these lingering questions, that the police really didn't answer. Mm-hmm. In their investigation and and i think it left the door open for paranormal ex, explanations so i mean one of the factors was that all of the the uh victims were found lying face down in their beds you know they were found in different rooms but they were all lying face down um so there's a question of like you know how would One person have gone through and murdered six people on two different floors and and nobody got up. Nobody Mm -hmm. ran out the door, you know, um, and then none of the neighbors reported hearing the gunshots. And the murder weapon was a thirty five caliber Marlin hunting rifle, a very loud weapon. And shooting it inside of a house would create an even larger, you know, um, a ricochet sound and so there was another question of why, you know, why did did none of the neighbors hear the gunshots? Um, and and, you know, they were really weren't able to answer these questions. And, and so, um, you know, Hans Holzer comes along and he um, he is one of the you know, original sort of paranormal investigators. He wrote a book called The Ghost Hunter that was a huge hit in the early 60s. And, you know, he was a regular on the talk show circuit. He was originally a journalist and had been born in Austria. And he created he he came from a sort of pseudoscientific background and approach. So he actually looked down upon the Warrens who came from a more of a Christian construct of of being demonologists. But Hans Holzer, Holzer described himself as a parapsychologist And um, so he he felt that um, that there, you know, the the answer to what happened in the house and what happened with Ronnie DeFeo Junior was that he had actually been possessed by a Native American chief named Rolling Thunder, who had been buried underneath the house and whose uh, remains had been disturbed and was angry about that. And so he actually uh, described Ronnie DeFeo Jr. as a victim himself for having Mm -hmm. been possessed by this Indian chief, which which caused him to commit these murders. And he had a theory about how in a moment of possession, you know, that there there would be a kind of like dome, you know, over the house that that would be um, part of the reasons why no sound could escape. Um, So he wrote his own Book about the the Amityville murders, which became the basis of Amityville 2, The Possession, the sequel, um, which, you know, was produced by Dino De Laurentiis Mm -hmm. and actually was not an authorized uh, sequel. It's actually a prequel (laughs) about the DeFeo murders. But um, there was a lawsuit about that. The Lutzes um, sued Dino De Laurentiis for... Uh, creating this sequel without their permission, so that's why it's called Amityville 2, The Possession instead of The Amityville Horror, because it's not actually based on the book or on the first film. But in in doing that, uh, Dino De Laurentiis basically created the the construct, which would then give birth to more than forty films that still come <laughs> out, you know, to this day, because basically Amityville is both the town name. And then, of course, the events of the murders, which were a big deal at the time, you know, covered by Walter Cronkite. Um, and then, of course, the hauntings, also a big media sensation. So those stories and those details are sort of out um, in the public domain. And so, you know, the combination of that means that um, basically anybody can make a movie and and put the word Amityville in yes. it. And and that's where you what leads to this kind of strange you know, strange mix of studio releases and, and DIY films and direct-to-video films that continues to this day. So, so that, that is kind of that
0: is kind of a, uh, bring up a question that I, I have for everyone, and that's, so the Amityville Horror, as we've been discussing, it starts off as this kind of weird intersection of true crime, uh, real-world events, this, this very hyped-up horror story, these possessions, Multiple different strains of paranormal investigation going on, and and by the time we get to today, we have Amityville Vampire, Amityville Karen, you know, like Amityville Karen. I don't even need to make jokes anymore. The, the, what can I do beyond Amityville Karen? Yeah. So I was just gonna say, how, how do we feel about the, the the kind of long history of of Amityville horror and, and Jack? I'd also be interested to hear like. What what drew you to this project in particular? Given that the the kind of story of the Amityville Horror now kind of has to not only carry the weight of of its very complicated initial history, but now you've like we've been doing a lot of joking about where this franchise has gone, and it has aged. I think it's safe to say very poorly. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think it's it's interesting because you have these hardcore. Fans, and I think obviously the the internet and also social media kind of gave the the fans fandom you, you know another second and third life because um, people just seem endlessly fascinated with these stories and events, and they they want to dig into them themselves and come up with their own theories. And you have different types of fans. Some are hardcore fans of the films and you know you really do have people that are obsessed with the films and you have horror conventions and you know christopher lutz himself has participated you know in some of those horror conventions and i think you you know as Mm -hmm. as well as um mino Pellucci, the 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 actor who plays christopher Mm -hmm. in the film you know he he's had a career doing horror conventions um, so you have that kind of like odd uh, element of it. And I think you, you see a lot of the people connected to the story have this kind of love-hate relationship with it where it's like they kind of want to get away from it. But then that keeps pulling them back in. and um, And so there's that aspect. And then you have this sort of paranormal world. And and that, of course, has has just exploded and exploded. And, and you have a lot of amateur paranormal investigators who who want to reinvestigate these cases that they still go by the house with equipment, you know, measuring things, you know, trying to uh, communicate and capture evidence. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know. this It just seems to, to keep going and going and going and. Um, and that's it's a strange it's a strange phenomenon in, in that respect. Absolutely, but I mean, yeah, the movies have gotten to, to certainly an absurd place where you have Amityville in space and you have Amityville in the hood, and you know, I mean, I think it'll just it'll just keep uh, keep keep going like that. Um, I don't think this will be the last word on this by any means. Yeah, and. How how long
0: until we get the Amityville versus spinoff series? And in in our opinion, as, as kind of you know de facto horror movie experts, who would Amityville fight in a versus franchise spinoff? Oh wow! I'm I'm going to put Poltergeist to reboot as as the Poltergeist versus uh, I'm Amityville. I'm going to say Pazuzu.
1: That seems like. Uh... Ooh, <laughs> okay ba- okay basically like the moral of the story is uh if your priest doesn't look like a, a prematurely aging max wants it out you need you definitely need to leave <laughs> <laughs> you gotta get out of it
2: yeah I mean I, it does I, I it's a strange one because it's not, uh, like I said, it's not the type of thing that's that's a tightly held franchise by a company. And I think that kind of gives it a sort of like, you know, weird cult hmm. underground sort of juice <laughs> that, um, that keeps kind of um, cycling over and around it. I mean, I had a weird moment where I was like, probably in like, you know, 20 years, someone's going to want to interview yeah, me yeah. about having made this show <laughs> you know and like that is kind of like this strange um, cycle mm-hmm. a cycle of of this verse. but I mean I, I guess I did feel like for me what was really fascinating about it was the origins which is why it's called Amityville mm-hmm. an origin story mm-hmm. and really like rooting it in the 70s and seeing sort of yeah. where it came from. That was really the more fascinating aspect versus this long strange legacy. Although I will say that, you know, part of what I found interesting is is the strange parallels between the seventies and sort of what we're what we're dealing with today in terms of I think a moment of, of mass anxiety and of again mm-hmm. people turning to the occult and the zodiac and to to other things and for for answers and um and also just um you know, this, this distrust of institutions, this uh, mainstreaming of, of conspiracy Mm -hmm. theory. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the, the, the weirdness that's happening now, I think um, you could sort of draw some lines and connections back to what was going on in the seventies with also just the disillusionment, you know, you have the, the Vietnam war, you have Nixon resigning and Watergate. um, And I think like our, our political, turmoil right now you could definitely feel some similarities there not to mention of course covid which which shut everyone down and trapped them at home with their families <laughs> <you know? laughs> and like so <laughs> it it did feel like weirdly relevant to revisit this story right now and to try to you know look at it um, through the through through a different lens um, but
1: maybe we can talk kind of briefly about like uh, the actual process of putting this together. Cause you know, like the day that I came out, you know, you, you were doing incredibly long days. It, it was, it was in LA. It was so, I've never felt more painfully British than, than just like being in, in LA and just like feeling myself audibly sizzle as I walk into like anything that's not shade. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about like how you like the, the, the kind of process of putting it together A few of the other people who are maybe not so directly involved, you got in as contributors, um, and that sort of angle.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, it's it was a a new kind of approach for me because again, I'd never done a series before, and definitely television has a a different kind of construct and approach to it. I mean, mainly it's just that you're you're on this very intense schedule, and there's you know there's a release date. Mm -hmm. That's pretty locked in that you have to hit. And um, and so, you know, one of the consequences of that is that you you sort of try to group most of your interviews all together into one big block. And so, you know, over about a period of six weeks, you know, I probably did like 30 interviews. Um, which I mean was just kind of insane. So you were at the sort of tail end of that, and <laughs> I definitely by the end of of thirty interviews about Amityville Horror, you know, I my I'm just starting to lose my mind a little bit. But um, but um, but yeah, I mean it was. I mean I think um, you know I wanted to definitely have the interviews have their own look and feel to them. Uh, you know, I I definitely. Uh, didn't want it to feel like just a sort of boring talking head fest. And so we put a lot of thought and effort, um, my director of photography, Todd Dos Santos, and our production designer, Elizabeth May, um, you know, into the locations and into the lighting. And, and, you know, we did um, sort of lightly style people. Um, We wanted to kind of, imbue the interviews with a bit of the seventies feel Mm -hmm. and also this sort of older, um, vintage houses and, and kind of creepy houses. And we have this whole kind of window motif where we, we position a lot of the interview subjects, um, with an element of being backlit by, by windows behind them, um, to sort of try to, again, pull in those, The iconic Mm -hmm. kind of windows from from the film, um, and these kind of slits of light, you know, to kind of again give give that sort of horror vibe. So so that you're seeing just kind of like a little bit of light spill between you know between the curtains. Um, So I mean I think um, I'm definitely um, proud of how the interviews came out because I think obviously that's that's one of the things that I think can separate a show like this and put it into a more premium space is that you're you're really trying to have a considered approach, you know, to to everything that you do and you're not just sort of running and gunning and and shooting 10 interviews in a day in a warehouse, you know, but like where we shot your interview John was was really neat. It was like this Uh, Beverly Hills mansion, uh, from the, it was Mm -hmm. a silent film director Mm -hmm. who had, who had built the mansion and it was, you know, it was a pretty, pretty wild location. Um, and that's later in the day. We, we also shot with Diane Franklin in a different room of the house. And that's the, um, the actress who, who is in Amityville to the possession. And she plays Dawn DeFeo's character, um, and then years later, in an independent film that was released more recently, she played the the mother of the DeFeo fam- family, Louise DeFeo, in, a, in yet another sequel. Um, so she has the strange distinction of playing both, you know, daughter and, and mother in the same Amityville franchise um, and, um, yeah, so, so anyway, I mean, that's, that was, that was one, one element was sort of our approach to, to the interviews. And then, you know, then we had a break where we sort of started the edits and I, I tried to push off doing the original photography, um, for as long as possible. I didn't want to use actors cause I, I personally find the recreation stuff that's very popular in the doc world these days. I find it very distracting yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah, I agree. guess you know, I'll agree. Yeah. You're either like shooting around people's faces, which just is really awkward, or mm-hmm. you're just seeing actors, which is also very yeah, strange. It can come off so as like, so hokey. I, <laughs> Yes, yes. And it's a you, very. You wind up looking like unsolved mysteries. <laughs> exactly. It's a very slippery slope. It's hard to, to keep it cinematic when you're doing that. So, right off the bat, you know, I said I, I wasn't going to use any actors. And instead, I really wanted to invest in the production design and the locations and really try to bring the house alive with the camera movement, the lighting, um, mm-hmm. and really make the house. A character, you know, in and of itself, um, and so you know, I tried to push off that that original photography window for as long as possible, so we could get the edits started and try to sort of, you know, start to build what the show would be. Um, our supervising editor, Andrew Ford, is someone who I had worked with previously on my feature documentary, *The Seventh mm-hmm. Fire*. And you know, so we um, are very creatively aligned, I would say. And so he was a huge uh, force in shaping the editorial approach. And um, and so you know, we were able to sort of get those edits started. And then, and then a couple months later, we did a a whole production window of of shooting the original photography in several different houses around New York City and Long Island.
1: Um, yeah and and I think for the record the the interviews all look so good um and it like the the whole team oh, yeah, like, yeah. the whole team made the whole experience like really exciting and uh it was it was intense those were, if like, if all of those interviews you've been doing were as long as the one that uh, we did I'm like you have, you've have my undying <laughs> respects because that room was about like Like that room was like 35 degrees. There were huge blackout curtains. You all must've been dying in there.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we were pretty in a groove at that point. I mean, I think it was the next day that I interviewed John Hmm. Carpenter um, which was an interesting experience. <laughs> he, was, he, he is not a fan of the Amityville Horror, which is funny. Um, I, I, it's not a hundred percent clear why he agreed to do the interview, except he had a connection to one of our executive producers. But I was really, I was curious to talk to him because, of course, Halloween came out in 1978. You know, just just before the Amityville Horror, and. Um, and, you know, it was it, it was, uh, you know, an interesting experience trying to interview him. <laughs> but, but, um, I think he adds a lot to this show, though. I mean, one, one thing that I think is great is he gives a little a little sort of history of the haunted house in movies, um, sort of going back to the to the dawn of cinema. And um, and the very first uh, example he uses, so I think, a milieu George yeah. Millier film that um, uh, that he then remakes a year later so it's like even at the at the very beginning of cinema they were like remaking movies um, just a year year a year apart um, but um, but I appreciated um, Carpenter's kind of perspective on um, on the history of the haunted house it's one house of those film. moments
1: where you just go talk about whatever you want John <laughs> like, you know
2: just, <laughs> yeah fine
1: let's talk about the Millier brothers <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> yes. Um, so so yeah. Well, I'm glad you had a good experience, John. I thought your your interview came out really well, and uh, we were happy to have your your voice um, in the show. I mean, we definitely wanted to be careful about how we sort of brought in um, you know certain expert voices, and um, so you know we we sort of we don't lead with that. It's sort of we want you to kind of get into the story and the characters, and then I think you know towards the ends of the episodes, it's like you're sort of ready for a little context to kind of um, understand, you know, to sort of zoom out a little bit. And, uh, and you were really helpful in, in providing that. Um, and so was um, Eric Davis, the, uh, the, the cultural yeah. critic, yeah. Um, to kind of like help speak to kind of some of what was going on in the 70s and, and kind of tie some of these things together.
1: Um, Ash, do you have any, any final questions that you want to ask?
0: Uh, yeah, there's really, I mean, like, this is another one of those classic episodes that we have here where, like, there's just so much more to discuss. Like, I just wanted to say that I loved the the, the cinematography and, and how you approached visually, like, the visual language of an Amityville origin story documentary series, because it it, it so effectively captures the kind of, emotional sensibility of Amityville horror without crossing what I think is a very important line into that, like uh, a nineties late night TV, true crime, (laughs) uh, like, like uh, you know like i unsolved mysteries is fun and i love it but like whenever they're like recreating a ghost episode like you can practically see somebody with a stick yeah. shaking the chandelier <laughs> and it it really it really cuts away all of the like emotional weight of the murders they're discussing and i think like you know like your your sensibilities for this one were spot on for balancing the fact that amityville horror has become kind of a goofy movie franchise but it is rooted in like real world murders, real world history, this actual location—so many people's real lives are now bound forever
2: to a horror movie franchise. It, it was just really, really well done. Oh, that's that's amazing to hear, and yeah, I have to—I <laughs> give give praise to our cinematographer Todd Dos Santos, who's who has really uh, brought his his ingenuity to it. And it was a really uh, thin line to walk. I mean, the the network was obsessed with us. Getting some jump scares <laughs> into it, they really, they really <laughs> wanted it to be scary, you no. know. M- MGM Plus and like, um, yeah, and you know, and I think, I mean, in the, in a way, I mean, I saw it as an opportunity, of course, to play with that. But I mean, it's funny in a in a documentary series to try to like build in jump scares, and um, and we had uh, our VFX artist Joe Vitali too, who really did some amazing work, and and it really is a very very narrow, narrow line you're walking where it can just become so ridiculous and so hokey so quickly. And um, and I have to give praise to to our uh, amazing sound design team at Gigantic because they really did incredible work, you know, elevating some of the scenes. I mean, I knew right from the start that the sound design was going to be such an important element because it's it's so much about how you build out you know, the, the world beyond what you can see and, and how you mm. can suggest um, dark and, and demonic things that you, you know, that that you'd really be be better off not mm. visualizing. You know? so, um, <laughs> so, yeah, the, the sound work really did, did oh, a lot yeah. for us. Absolutely. Too, but I'm glad that um, I'm glad that that came across. Uh, well, I guess. Go, on, Ash, I, I go am,
0: on. I am. Oh, I was just gonna say I, I am. I am a little curious about something that you just mentioned, like so so in your which I think is really successful this desire to put together like a more somber and level-headed approach to the Amityville horror it, I don't know meta text right the the movies the books the real world stuff what was there a lot of pressure to, uh, to become the hokey Amityville horror documentary to add jump scares to 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 hype up the haunting angle or the murders to to make it like I, I was really, it was really happy that nothing is, nothing is sensationalized in this documentary series. It's, it's a very open discussion. And did you have to,
2: was, was that something that you had to like really fight against in, in any respect? No, I mean, I have to say, you know, again, this is my first time doing TV and, you know, I I didn't know what that would be like. And I think it is very different depending on what network you're at and what creative executives you're dealing with. And we were just so fortunate on the show to have the support of the network from the very beginning. They loved what we were doing and they wanted they really wanted it to keep it in a sort of premium elevated cinematic space. So they wanted it to be scary, for sure. You know, Michael Wright, the, mm-hmm. the head of of MGM Plus, you know, loves Amityville and 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 loves horror genre, loves the 70s cinema, and and really wanted it to be scary. And you know, I think I think that helped actually that that they were pushing in that way because it just made us uh, have to find <laughs> find mm-hmm. how to do that um, within this construct. So um, so it was a really um, it was a great crea- creative collaboration with the network, and um, and you know I think um, I- I'd have to also mention our composer Paul Hasslinger, um, who was a member of of Tangerine mm. Dream. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> That's amazing. You know, and then he's he's been a composer for you know for a long time, um, including you know a bunch of of big. Um, Hollywood, he did Halt and Catch Fire, the TV series, but he also did, um, like a Resident Evil movie. You know, he's done, he's done a lot of different things. And of course, Tangerine Dream did some, um, amazing scores, um, and soundtracks, um, in the eighties as well. Um, and, you know, that was a really fantastic collaboration. And I I knew that, of course, the composer is going to add a lot to this too. And we wanted to sort of channel some of that kind of early electronic experimentation um, from the original Tangerine dream Mm, days and, um, and try to create something that felt, you know, felt new, but, um, but still had some of that DNA in it. Um, And so that was uh, another great, you know, great, great element of our team. Yeah. And I
1: think, I think there may, there may be people who are kind of like instinctively sort of put off by something like this. Maybe it's people who do find, uh, the Amityville kind of story, something that's been picked over to death, or something that is a little bit kind of hokey or a little bit kind of tawdry. But um, I think the, it's these people, especially that I think could really could should really watch it because I think you manage to do something which is very difficult, which is restore a kind of not only a historicist sense of like what this cultural time was like, but also that kind of like ethical reminder that you know there were there were real people who who died very tragically in this place and who are often kind of either mythologized or completely forgotten and buried under you know cheap dvd copies of amityville horror in space um and so and i think that's i think that's something that's like not only such an incredibly difficult thing to pull off but something that's so necessary as well
2: yeah, I mean, I, we wanted to kind of make something that, that, that did have an authoritative quality to it. And it definitely uh, jumped out to me that the murder of the DeFeo family is really kind of like this strange, dark energy that animates this story. I, I don't think you would have this phenomenon without that, that real-life tragedy because at the end of the day, I think that's the thing that is the most haunting you know what could make someone murder their entire family, and uh, the the sort of impossibility of understanding that, of course, led to a, a lot of different theories, including possession, and including this sort of dark energy within the house. And so, you know, as with a lot of a lot of horror, I think it's it sort of becomes this kind of proxy for trying to understand that mm-hmm. fear.
1: Uh, well, I guess I guess uh, the the kind of final thing to, to to say is like just to be as explicit as possible is like where can people find the show? Where can people find the rest of your work? And um, can we ask about maybe what might be next?
2: Sure, sure, yeah. So um, the series is on MGM Plus in the United States, um, which is. A service that just sort of relaunched in January it used to be called Epics. It's a linear cable channel. So if you ha- still have cable, you might have it in your package. Um, sort of like in a, as, a, as like a stars level kind of premium cable channel. Uh, but it's also a, a over-the-top, you know, streaming service now. So you can go to mgmplus.com, sign up directly, or you can get it through you know Apple TV or or Prime Video or Roku wherever you subscribe to channels it's only 5.99 so it's like a yep. pretty much a bargain a bargain channel you get a lot of MGM movies in there you get you know Rosemary's Baby and some some kind of um you know sort of repertory um you know old school 70s catalog <laughs> stuff and then they also have a lot of theatrical you know new theatrical releases and some original series like this one and some scripted mm. series too so um, MGM plus is the network and then, um, and they are rolling out internationally. So they will be, uh, in Europe, I think within, within the year, they pl- have plans to expand. Um, and then, yeah, for my work, I mean, I, you know, I don't, what's next. I, I, I'm trying to, trying <laughs> to figure that out myself, but yeah, I'm working, I'm working on a narrative script right now and, uh, and have a few. Other projects in development, so I, nothing that's that's uh, that's ready <laughs> for prime time. But um, but I'll, I'll be sure to keep, yeah. keep you guys posted.
0: Yeah, definitely. Welcome back to discuss any any forthcoming and future spooky projects. Yeah, absolutely. This has been a really good chat. Thanks for I having highly, me. I highly encourage everyone to check this out. This is, this is a fantastic docu series exploring, I, I think, a franchise that. It has been loved in perhaps the wrong way. I, I think it's it's good to get this historicist sense back to Amityville.
2: Awesome. Well, thanks thanks for having me, guys, and appreciate uh, hearing your reactions to the show. It's always it's <laughs> always it's always cool to hear. Um, you know, to hear the, hear the response, and uh, I feel like you guys picked up on some really amazing aspects. So I appreciate that. Amazing. Thanks. Well, everyone, uh,
0: check out this documentary series. Uh, check out the rest of Jack's works. They'll be linked to everything down in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, everyone, uh, have a have a spooky little week. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky!